Hello, thank you for your interest in GeoConvention Industry Leaders Fireside Chats. I'm John Hogue, the moderator for this chat that's focused on investment outlook impacting, impacting North America. I'm happy to introduce the leaders for this kickoff plenary session, Derek Wheatley, who's Managing Director, Co-Head of Tudor, Pickering, Holt & Company, and Eric Nuttall, a partner at Nine Point Partners LP. Thank you both for taking the time out of your busy schedules for this session. Could you each provide the delegates with a short bio before we start? Uh, start the questions. Derek, let's start with you. Sure, happy to do that. And, and thanks for having us today. Um, so by way of background, uh, and, and I should mention that I'm the co-head for Canada. Um, my name isn't Tudor Pickering or Holt, so it's tough to be the co-head for the whole firm. But um, the, uh, oh, sorry. the background on, no, 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 it's great. Um, the background on me is uh, I, I, I've been fortunate to work in the energy industry and the capital markets for um, about 20 years at this point in time. Um, during that time, I've worked on the advisory part of the business for probably 15 of those years. And, and I had a, uh, a very good experience working in capital markets, which is actually where I came across and, and built a friendship with Eric. Um, and I think that... Um, you know, during that time period, there's been a lot of cyclical impacts to the industry, and now uh, beyond cyclical, some broader trends that are affecting the industry at the moment. Um, our team at TPH does predominantly work across what might be called traditional energy, uh, but there has been, uh, for us and for many different um, participants in the energy space, um, many different forms of energy that are becoming more in vogue in capital markets. And like... Uh, like any participant in the global capital markets, you need to be you know, up to speed on what's happening in different places and try to be adaptive to where investor capital is going. And so uh, that would be the short background, and I look forward to the discussion today. Okay. So, Eric? Great. Uh, happy to spend the time with you. I'm Eric Nuttall. I manage the Nine Point Energy Fund, uh, which is the largest energy fund in the country. Uh, at last check, we were also the best performing energy fund in the world this year, according to Morningstar. So we've been managing the fund since about 2010, which, as we all know, has been a very tough period. But I'm extremely optimistic uh, that we've entered into a multi-year bull market for oil and look forward to getting into that in the discussion. Okay. Thank you both. Let's, just, let's start with the questions. Eric, I'll start with you on the first question. How strong is investment in the Canadian-U.S. Canadian energy markets? both domestically and internationally sourced? And are there some short-term impacts due to the pandemic, low interest rates, and, and, and the price of oil? Yeah, I'd say interest uh, remains anemic. Uh, I've used the analogy that the generalist investor is, is stuck in a coma. And there's been a lot of uh, aspects that have led to this. It began for many, many years of just terrible performance of energy stocks, both on a relative and absolute uh, basis, beginning with you know the rise of U.S. shale, oversupply markets, shifts in OPEC strategy, et cetera. And so that torched so much investor capital that the generous investor really took a step back. Last year was a special time to, to manage money, as we know, through March, you know, the demand shock, et cetera, all going uh, negative. Um, what we have seen in recent months, at least, is the, the starting of the, just the first like inkling of generalist investors starting to reassess the sector. And I think that's because the return potential is so outlandishly positive that even if ESG pressures, which is a huge theme that we'll be talking about through much of this uh, discussion, you know, the divestments uh, just uh, you know, today, uh, Harvard announced you know, they won't be investing in fossil fuels and dirty oil, et cetera. And so there's this pressure on traditional money managers, especially the generalist investors, to justify to themselves or their investment committees or their investors, why do I have a dollar invested in oil and gas stocks? And so my messaging to oil company CEOs has been, you need to spell it out for them. And given current oil prices, and frankly, an oil price $10 lower than where we are today, but the current pricing environment, the amount of free cash flow and the ability to pay egregious levels of dividends and conduct massive share buybacks, that return proposition needs to be so outlandishly amazing that even if it pulls that generalist investor back kicking and screaming, the opportunity cost of not being invested is just simply too great. And that's where I think we're on the cusp of today. Okay. Derek? So I think Eric made a lot of great points there. Um, interest has uh, probably diminished, I would say, 
certainly every year for about six years, and you could say that most of the last 10 years that has been true. Um, the amount of institutional ownership um, by as measured by dollar value, as measured by number of fund managers. I mean, a lot of Eric's peers um, are no longer uh, in roles actively investing in the energy industry and weathering the market back to the recovery that's underway right now. And the loss of both capital and professionals focused on the space um, definitely eats away from the breadth of capital that is available. Now, there have been certain things that have filled in some of those gaps in a, in a maybe not a complete way, but in a very, very partial way. Things like family offices or private capital coming in. But I want to differentiate even on that front insofar as um, at one point in time, you know, private equity capital was a very large component of, say, upstream funding in terms of this, the broader energy segments. And that space also has faced a lot of compression. There are still some very strong firms in that space, but I would say for every firm that is still investing in the upstream space from a private equity perspective, there's one that is no longer doing that and they've moved on. And, and I'd say it's it's a little bit like Harvard that Eric explained, and I, I saw that announcement, and it was definitely a continuation of a trend that's been happening. Um, but it's it's beyond that. Some of the firms have just shut down and just stopped investing in the space. And it's hard for them when the cycle turns to start investing again when you don't have a firm anymore, right? right. That that becomes a bit more of a um, terminal problem to try to overcome. Um, the last thing I'd say is, you know, Eric made a really good point. And I think it's worth us talking about today about the types of valuations that exist and the types of um, asset level, corporate level, um, security level type returns that tend to be available. Because I do think it's fair to say in the context of current strip prices and the backdrop we're seeing, uh, it's, it's, you know, despite the fact that valuations and arguably uh, level of in, investor depth is at a 10-year low, um, I would argue that um, the rates of return available are very near to a 10-year high, if not at a 10-year high, which is a bit of a paradox we should go through. Any, any comments about that? Eric? Valuations today. So we can use strip, we can use current oil pricing. My mindset is I'm using $70 oil for next year when I'm making investment decisions. And approximately the average company would be trading at about 2.7 times enterprise value to cash flow. More importantly, they'd be trading at a 26% free cash flow yield relative to their market cap. And so my big theme next year, and I think the largest determinant of share price performance will be which companies can return sustainably the most amount of capital back to shareholders. It's a theme we're seeing in the United States. We had Oventive today, you've seen Diamondback, Devon, others committing at a minimum 50% of free cash flow towards returns. So when my goal, and I use Twitter and Financial Post, et cetera, as tools to try to communicate the opportunity again, my small part to try to shake that generalist investor from uh, their apathetic coma that they seem to be stuck in, if the average company in Canada did what their U.S. peers are doing and committed 50% of their free cash flow next year to returns, you could see 10% dividend yields on the large caps, like a Sonovas, a Suncor. I own holdings without getting specific in my fund, where I think they'll be paying a 20% dividend yield based upon their current share price early next year. And so I really want to message, you know, a lot of this concern about, you know, lack of external sources of financing and the lack of generalist investors the power really is in the boards and the CEOs themselves. If they take meaningful enough action based upon current free cash flows to become the buyer of their own stock, I don't. We don't need the generalist investor to come back to get a re-rating in share prices, so long as companies commit decisively and meaningfully. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the second question. Uh, Derek, we'll start with you. What are the profiles of the investors that are currently seriously looking at Canadian oil and gas investments? Um, well, when we, uh, it's always interesting because first of all, there was a point in time when there used to be really thorough data screening and you could identify 50 or 60% of the shareholder base of any given company um, through a whole series of public reporting mechanisms that you could screen and mine for information. Um, you know, when we go through and look at the publicly available data using third-party sources like a, uh, um, a firm like FactSet or Capital IQ or Bloomberg or others, and they aggregate information that's required to be disclosed from different fund managers, 
Um, in many cases, you can only build up about 40%, uh, in, in many cases, much less than that, of a company's ownership base. Now, there are firms that are higher, but in a recent screen that we had done of some of the you know, more notable, I would say, um, top top five, top eight producers by size in the Canadian market, um, we could identify about 40%, not more than 50, uh, for most of the companies. Um, the implication of that is several fold. Um, one, uh, the breadth of publicly reported funds owning versus non-reporting funds has shifted in favor of non-reporting funds, but also there's probably just been an exodus of funds in favor of could be retail, could be other forms of capital. Um, I'd also say in the, in the, what's called a pot list in the industry, but that's when an equity financing happens and there's a distribution of shares on what in Canada is done under a bot deal. Uh, format, typically a prospectus-based bot deal format. Um, when you get a pot list, you tend to see which investors have put up capital to support the company or transaction or other means of funding. Um, I would say that I have seen pot lists as long as you know 30 or 40 companies, and I've seen them as short as a handful of companies. Okay. Um, there are times over the past decade where that that sort of a list on an issuance of shares could easily have been um, 80, you know, 70, 80, possibly more investors, possibly over 100 in some cases. Um, and so the breadth of investors by public record, the breadth by placement of securities and issuance, and ultimately, I think, um, just by the number of investment professionals, all of that has narrowed. And so if you say, well, who are, who are the firms that are actively out there? Right. You know, I think that um, Eric and a limited subset of his competitors are notable. I would say there are some large units investors who've remained engaged, firms like um, Capital Research, to an extent Fidelity, to an extent Wellington. Uh, there are some specialist firms where people have changed roles and been successful, and I'd say active in what they're doing, firms like Kimmeridge. In the U.S., and interestingly, if you were to look in Canada right now, there are some pretty blocky positions amongst um, what I describe as vendor takeback equity positions, where you know Shell ended up owning meaningful positions in CNRL or Termaline. Um, a, a firm like um, GMT was a large investor in several firms. Uh, private firms like Anagata ended up owning meaningful components of buyers like Tamarack Valley for M&A transactions. So it seems that um, those are kind of trends affecting who the owners are of many of these businesses at this point in time. Okay. Eric? <coughs> Excuse me. My perspective, Derek's got a better sense on the institutional side of things. My read is on the retail because my fund, um, as I mentioned, is the biggest in the country and 100% of my client base is retail investors. Right. And so every morning I get my best read, and that is those are outflows. And generally speaking, we've had extremely good inflows this year. So it's an indicator that the interest level of retail is extremely high. It's building. Okay. Um, and I, I think people discount the level of buying power of the retail community, and it's quite significant. So, you know, tangentially, I would also say institutionally, you know, well, you may hear about, you know, the Harvards of the world, et cetera. My hope, again, is from discussions with trading desks in Canada, there's growing pressure, there's growing interest, there's growing inbound phone calls from the larger generalists to you know dust off models, updates, talk about, okay, what names? I haven't looked at this name in two, three years. And those are exactly the kinds of anecdotes that you want to hear as a precursor to buying power returning to the market. Okay, okay. Okay, that's great, thank you. Um, uh, next question, uh, I'll start with Eric. What level of capital investment is needed to keep the Canadian oil and gas industry going at a reasonable growth rate and to be attractive to, to future investment? Yeah, so we, we know it's been an incredibly challenging environment for what feels like an eternity. We know cost structures have been right-sized, layoffs, all of the, you know, the, the, the excesses like the corporate bars and et cetera have all been wound down. I certainly hope so, at least. I haven't been out there for two years. I'll do my own due diligence soon. But um, in terms of the business model, though, today, the road that we're on is not like the road we've been on for the past five-ish years. The mantra of rising oil price, rising cash flows, rising capex, that relationship is completely broken. 
And it's broken because there are guys like me suggesting to companies, you cannot possibly justify spending a dollar beyond that, which is required to keep production flat, when your stock's trading at two times cash flow and like a 35% free cash flow yield. The very best investment with that dollar is your own uh, stock. So I, I think the relation, that relationship, that, that requirement then of external financing is no longer what it was. You know, the, the, the necessity to underspend one's cash flow and commit at least 50% of free cash flow going back to investors is, is, is paramount right now. So I, I think the, you know, the business models, the investability of the Canadian oil and gas sector is a lot better today than it would have been uh, five years ago. The, the business risk of, my God, you know, the stock market's closed, the high yield market's closed, banks don't want to finance at all in Canada or the U.S. due to their own ESG pressures. What are we going to do? You know, with very, very, very few exceptions, those concerns are, are no longer uh, valid. They're very, very obsolete. Okay. Okay. Derek? Oh, you're on mute, Derek. Uh, so I agree with what Eric said. I think the um, to cut to the numerics of the question that you asked, uh, stretching back two years, um, the expectation certainly for the upstream component of the industry is that uh, 70% of asset level cash flow post GNA could be reinvested into CapEx. And that would be a reasonable business model uh, supported by firms like Conoco, Chevron, some of the larger producers, and then pushed down to many other types of operators. Um, as commodity prices have increased and frankly, capital prices, sorry, capital programs shrunk throughout 2020, um, those numbers are often coming in closer to 50% of um, EBITDA being reinvested as CapEx, and in some cases, 40%. Now, I tend to think those numbers are going to go up and the capital programs will increase. Um, but even with that, what Eric had referenced was that 50% of free cash flow needs to go towards shareholder returns. Right. To put that in context, if a company was reinvesting 50%, of its EBITDA into CapEx, that implies that something like 25% of EBITDA would go towards um, shareholder returns and 50% would go towards uh, reinvestment in CapEx. Okay? If we put that in context of what I talked about before, which is that um, you know it used to be uh, an idea that 75% of capital would go towards CapEx, and maybe 25% would be available for shareholder returns. The overall mix may or may not be different, but the debt pay down that's happened has been quite notable. And so there's been a big change in debt pay down that has happened over that interim period. What's really interesting, it comes back to the original answer that Eric gave actually, um, which is you know, you're at this precipice of shareholder returns improving for the space. Um, Many of the firms coming out, uh, CNRL in Canada and Oventiv being examples recently, have a debt paydown target. And after they reach that debt paydown target, then they accelerate shareholder returns. Okay. Um, it'll be really interesting to see what happens as those debt targets are hit, how shareholder returns very quickly accelerate. And I think that's how you get to Eric's earlier comment around things like um, you know, 20% dividend yields and whether a firm chooses to ramp the dividend yield to that level or not, just the ability to deliver a shareholder return that would be 20% of your market cap, it, it's quite staggering. Right. Yeah. If you, like if we look at valuations today on that theme, because I really, again, I think it's the antidote to the apathy of the generalist investor. By my math, at $70 oil, the average company could buy back all of their shares outstanding and become debt-free with only 4.7 years of free cash flow at approximately the current oil price. So it's just, you know, as, as a guy going out and, you know, raising, trying to raise funds, et cetera, for his, his fund. And the, the opposition I would sometimes get is, well, geez, Eric, like, I don't know what the heck oil demand's going to be in five years, 10 years, 15 years. What's the oil price outlook, et cetera. And so the, the one uh, aspect that I could come up with to nullify those concerns is, well, I own companies that can do it in three years, literally three years of free cash flow. They can buy back every single share outstanding and become debt free. So I don't care what demand looks like in 10 years. Frankly, I think it's going to be higher than it is today. But if they can do it in three, I'm getting a free call option on the residual inventory. Like So, you know, it, it's, I, I believe at least that in the coming weeks, not months, not quarters, we're going to see the beginnings of announcements of companies coming out with five-year plans, the initiation of meaningful dividends. I think we'll be seeing dividend increases 
uh, imminently from um, several companies. And I'm hopeful that that will re-engage the generalist investor. And if not, you, companies cannot maintain current valuations so long as they, they act with their free cash flow. Right, right. Derek, any, any final comment on this before we leave it? Um, you know, I, I heard Eric say something earlier that he said it in a very accurate way, but I, there's a, there's an implication of what he said. And that was, he talked about how companies were trading at 2.5 times EV to EBITDA, okay? Right. Um, or 2.5 times EBITDA. And one of the things you have to recognize is let's assume for a moment that industry debt levels have come down to one times debt to EBITDA, which many have, but not all. If you're trading at 2.5 times EV to EBITDA and your debt to EBITDA is one times, then your equity to EBITDA or your price to cash flow is um, about 1.5 times. Go back to what Eric just said about being able to pay out the business in three years. I mean, right. it, that set of numbers, 2.5 times EV to EBITDA, one times debt to EBITDA, 1.5 times equity to EBITDA or price to cash flow. Um, that basically says that if the multiple compressed any further, say for example, it compressed to one times price to cash flow. Right. Um, hypothetically, a person could hedge their production, shut off capital, and buy back 100% of their shares in a year. I'm not saying that's practical, but I'm saying that directionally speaking, that's what the valuation implication is. So how I think about that is you can only compress valuation so far. And what the market seems to be saying is that either um, they're, they're completely ambivalent, and I think Eric used the term comatose, right. um, or alternately, uh, they just really don't believe commodity prices can hold up. And you know, when you talk about one and two year periods, you can hedge that, right? So yeah. I think it's, it's quite staggering. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's an amazing story, and I'm glad we're able to share that, this with the delegates, because I think as a, as a common investor, you don't hear that same story or you don't read that story very often the way you guys are telling it. So it, it, it's, it's very interesting. Thank you for that. Let's move on to the next question and I'll start with Derek. What are the characteristics of the companies that are most likely to succeed in attracting future investment? And does size matter uh, from a startup to, to the kind of majors type thing? Uh, it's it's a hard question because there are different pots of capital, but let me start out by trying to give you a an estimation of how I would answer that at the outset. And then unfortunately, there's a whole series of exceptions that I think we'd have to talk through okay. um, that exist. In general, I think it's probably fair to say that if an investor could get an equivalent return from two companies and one of those companies was larger and more liquid and better capitalized, yes, the larger, more liquid, better capitalized company will get attention. Right. And that's just a, a preferential reduction in risk from an investor perspective. And, and even just a liquidity perspective, it's better. Um, now, that's not true, though, as a statement. There, Two companies aren't equivalent, and different companies have different return profiles. I think what's more nuanced is um, larger companies have shifted their portfolios and typically involve a large component of legacy assets. Many of the companies even involve chemicals, refineries, um, in some cases, uh, petrochemicals, right. um, all built in to what they're delivering as a free cash flow yield, and in some cases, large infrastructure projects like LNG or other things. And collectively, those firms have a very stable ability to deliver cash flow over a long time period. And the market, which seems to be besotted with both free cash flow and immediate returns of capital, is better geared towards the free cash flow that's available from those legacy projects. Okay, now. At the smaller end of the market, what we've seen is many companies, um, some of the stronger ones in terms of free cash yields that Eric had referred to that were approaching 20% or more free cash flow, um, are doing so through moderating their capital programs, predominantly through primary drilling. There aren't a lot who have large, true legacy assets that are plateau flat production in the offshore platform sense or an oil sand sense or a handful with thermal oil sands. And, um, the implication is those smaller firms are just extending their inventory over a longer period as they harvest more free cash flow for shareholder returns. Okay, so that's what's happening there. Very occasionally, though, there are some really exceptional companies that are able to deliver, you know, um, three, four, or five x returns to investors. And it's it, you know it's a needle in a haystack in terms of finding those companies and, and buying them before they actually get to the point of having a um, 
their value re-rated. But just right now, you know, you think about it, there are a certain number of companies that are able to deliver um, organically funded uh, two, three, four X returns. Right. An example of that in Western Canada would be something like the Clearwater play, where, you know, some of the private companies in that play have been exceptionally successful and, and look to continue to be exceptionally successful. And public companies um, like Headwater, uh, Tamarack Valley, and others, uh, most recently actually firms to the west of the play like Baytex uh, or, um, well, some others in the area, uh, are announcing results that seem to be surprisingly strong, Okay. And so when you talk about bigger or smaller companies, you kind of have to think about what the composition of those businesses are. And apples to apples, bigger companies get more attention, but it's not always apples to apples. And the smaller companies often have special attributes that get them funded. Right. Okay. Eric? As an investor, I can speak to the qualities that I look for. Um, I think, again, the big theme next year is going to be return of capital. It shouldn't be surprising. So the largest determinants of share price performance will be those companies who can return the most amount of capital back to shareholders. Right. And so there's obviously a lot of variables that go into that, but, um, you know, capital efficiencies, decline rates, et cetera. When I boil it down, I'm, I'm market cap agnostic. Uh, I, I'm trying to find where are the greatest inefficiencies because the, the market today is so unbelievably inefficient. And how, I, how do I measure that? So I do, I model out all the companies in, in, in the Canadian universe. And the, the band of valuation differentials is very, very narrow. So the average company at $70 will be trading at approximately 2.0 times to 2.7, 2.8 times enterprise value to cash flow. And so that means that you know not all, not all companies within that spectrum are of equal quality. There's junk, there's quality, et cetera. And yet there's not enough market participants to be able to assess the opportunities and distinguish between you know, the haves and the have-nots. So to me, that's a really great opportunity. Uh, I actually prefer the smaller cap companies because that's where I'm finding unbelievable valuations, where again, I referenced earlier companies that could pay a 20% dividend and grow it over time. Um, you don't find those in, in the Uber large caps, even though they're trading at very, very compelling valuations. And then lastly, I can invest anywhere in the world. Where I've, my uh, focus has and remains due to a variety of reasons is Canada. You know, you think about the build out of, of incremental egress, call it a million barrels per day over the next two, you know, two-ish years, you've got line three coming on like any day. So the, the worry that had prevented foreign capital from coming to Canada has now been completely nullified for at least the next decade. I look at valuations, Canadian companies are trading on par with those in Russia. And, you know, despite, we'll keep this apolitical, but I would suggest probably the political risk in Canada is slightly less than that of, of uh, you know, our Russian counterparts. And I look at, you know, what is what does the market globally want? What does the global investor want today? Do they want production growth? Absolutely not. They want to get paid and they want to get paid now. And the companies best able to do that of any jurisdiction on the planet are Canadian oil and gas companies. And wow. where are the most greatest mispricings? It's small and mid-cap Canadian oil companies. So that's where I'm invested. Okay. That's great. Derek, final comments or Fine with what Eric said. I think. Uh, listen, he's the expert in that area, so I would defer to him for sure. Okay, let's let's move on to the next question, and I'll start with Eric. The last decade has seen significant changes in the composition of the oil and gas business, with fewer juniors and and integrated multinational companies. Do you think that profile is still evolving, and if so, how? Yeah, I think the recap model is completely dead. Uh, the ability to go like just the 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 necessity to be relevant for investors to have a market cap big enough where you know a fidelity or somebody can come in and you know they buy ten percent of a company and it's a rounding error for them so it's kind of pointless to to do that so there is a need for scale to a degree you know for me that's not a barrier but I'm I'm slightly different than the average uh, investor so. Uh, most people, you know, you need critical mass. I would suggest probably Derek would know maybe better, but I would suggest at least, you know, two to $3 billion market cap to be able to be relevant to the larger generalist investors. Okay. So the ability to access capital, to play up, to prove up a play, you know, to come out with a thousand barrels per day of production, or oh, I'm going to go do financings and do roll-up strategies. There are actually some of the market trying to do that. It'll be interesting to see if they're met with success from the capital markets or not. I, I declined on, on a few of them that are in play now. Um, so yeah, I think the model going forward is you need to be for for the general for the average guy 
you've got to be big enough to matter. I don't think we're, you know, the whole M&A and consolidation wave in Canada is is over. You know, rising oil price maybe takes some of the pressure off because share stock, you know, stock performance has been pretty good this year. Right, right. But inevitably, scale scale will will matter. Um, but private access is is highly challenging, and the recap model I just think you know is from a different era. Okay, uh, Derek. I- First of all, I mean, in terms of the question of is the business model changing, for sure, and it always, you know, it is, and it'll continue to be that way. Right. Um, let me give you a couple of tenets of things that are changing. I think you you covered some of them in the question in the way it was posed. Um, first of all, uh, let me tell you what's going to change it, okay? <laughs> um, ultimately, a lack of capital in the immediate sense is leading to a change right now for the sizes and compositions of businesses. And to Eric's point about investors demanding a return of capital, um, and I use the word of, not on, in that sense, uh, in an immediate sense, that tells you what the current demand is, and that's going to change things. Um, Now, I'm a really big believer that over time, greed is a fantastic allocator of capital. And I don't mean that in a negative way, because greed is a word that some people find to be um, associated with, you know, negative connotations. That's not how I mean it. How I mean it is, if someone's making a lot of money, other people are inclined to wonder why they are not also making a lot of money. It's a very natural reaction that people have. And um, when you have a scarcity of capital, one of two things can occur. Uh, both related to supply and demand, right? Um, one, you know, you have a scarcity of capital, investment drops, and supply of the uh, available commodity or investment drops, and eventually that naturalizes at a new level, and then there's demand because it's repriced to a more attractive level. Okay, right. um, I would say that typically speaking, you know, you think about the repricing in energy equities. There's been a lot more supply than demand of energy equities. Right? Right. Yeah. I don't think I'm going too far on a limb to say that. Um, now, interestingly, that's happening at the exact same time that supply and demand for the underlying commodity, despite policy and newspaper um, items that come out in many different media sources, prices tend to say when you're at $5 gas uh, yesterday and you're at $70 oil, that demand is exceeding supply at this exact moment in the commodity. Right. And so what you have is an equity market where there appears to be excess supply and a commodity market where there appears to be excess demand. Right. And how I would interpret that is that sets up for greedy people to make a lot of money. And when those greedy people make a lot of money, there's going to be other greedy people who, uh, and, and again, I don't mean greedy as a negative no. word because I know that could have a negative connotation. Yeah. Like greedy people are going to look around and go, I need to spend more time making money there. And that will lead to reinvestment. As a specific example, you know, I look at, for example, the, the, the lowered investment that is available in private company investment at the smaller end of the market. Very hard to get funding in the private end of the market. And that private end of the market feeds into intermediate companies and build larger firms in the Canadian energy industry. Well, as the amount of available private equity capital falls, the returns available to those remaining in the space go up and up and up until eventually there's a sufficiently attractive return that new capital shows up right. and that creates an ecosystem around it. Okay? okay. That was a long answer, but that was, that's how I would see it playing out. Okay. Eric, any, any comment on what Derek said? Yeah, to boil it down, I think generalist fund managers need to suffer from profound performance anxiety as they continue to trail their benchmarks due to the continued outperformance of the energy sector. And, you know, ESG pressures or not, whether they need to be pulled back, kicking and screaming or willingly, the opportunity set in energy stocks today is just too compelling for the generalist investor to ignore it for much longer. And even if by some miracle they do, the actions I think coming on the part of energy CEOs to commit and codify extremely attractive return of capital plans for investors will lead to a re-rate regardless. Okay. Okay. That was great. Thank you. Um, 
the next question will be around ESG, um, which is something that I know a lot of our delegates have to uh, have to work through in their companies. But um, but the question is around ESG standards. What would be expected to attract investors in terms of their ESG standards for companies? And and Derek, I'll start with you. Damn, I thought you were going to ask Eric first. <laughs> um, let me let me say uh, first. Yeah, first comment on ESG scissors. is um, yeah. uh, first comment on ESG is. Um, I will say that in terms of when I speak to capital markets participants and I ask them about things that are having an influence on their life, um, about 75% of those participants view ESG as a major influencer in their life and their career. Okay. There are some who are able to be remote from that trend and able to both, uh, raise and distribute capital without having to focus on that. But I would say that's the minority. And the vast majority have it as a large and growing part of their responsibilities in a work context, right from fund managers all the way through to a company level. Um, When we are um, speaking with investors on this topic, I, I don't think I can give you a definitive list of exactly what one needs to do. And I, it, we have, as recently as this week, done checklists of what different companies are doing, um, just to say this is the menu available and different companies are taking different paths. But I, to give you a current context, and expecting this will likely change 12, 24, and 36 months from now, the current context is um, having a policy of addressing emission reduction is an important consideration that companies need to have. Um, There are several ways to accomplish that that we could dig into if you want to, you know, have follow-on dialogue on this topic. A second one is in terms of um, the very clear question of whether companies are going to have to commit to national or international policy standards in relation to corporate objectives. Some of those relate to climate. Some of them relate to employment diversity. Right. Um, some of them might even relate to compensation practices. Right. But I do think there's a lot of pressure okay. um, to match those criteria that are being set externally. And I think the last one that comes to mind for me is um, companies are being asked to consider whether their current business models need to adapt to include new forms of business that could be different forms of energy that could be different forms of assets it could be many things um and i'll tell you from boardrooms that we're involved in uh i don't think that there's a clear message from investors to companies about what the expectation is i think it's actually the opposite i think there's a question from investors to companies to help investors navigate and for companies to bring forward a strategy and a plan that investors can can evaluate after the company has posed it. Right. Okay. Let me let me be clear on that theme. As an investor, I would immediately liquidate a holding if they were to try to diversify their business into a low margin renewables where there's absolutely no competitive advantage whatsoever. So that's that's a pretty clear statement. From an ESG perspective, I, I mentioned earlier that my client base is 100% retail investors all across the country and, and some parts of the world. And how many times do they ask me about the ESG ratings of my fund holdings in the past year, literally, from you know thousands and thousands and thousands of clients? Right. Not once. Not once. And so it annoys me to no end. And I... You know, I spend my weekends writing a, a bi-weekly column now in the Financial Post to try yeah. to champion our sector because it drives me absolutely nuts. Like we're talking about 0.1% of global CO2 emissions. We're a global leader in you know, ESG. It's not just CO2 emissions. We're a global leader. And if we seed market share for a commodity which demand is going to grow for at least the next 10 years, it will be filled by jurisdictions where they still behead women in the streets. And so is that to the benefit of you know ESG ratings for us to do that. Like it's just complete idiocy. So I'm proud to be invested in the Canadian sector. Um, 
And so, yeah, so what's my concern? I have, I have zero ESG pressures and it annoys me to no end when, you know, you, there's, there's conversations around some generous investors, you know, they want to get out of dirty oil you know, in the next two or three years. It's just complete lunacy. Well, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind staying on this topic a little bit because, you, you know, you see the amount of effort that corporations are putting into ESG, uh, oil and gas corporations are putting into ESG standards. And to hear you, Eric, say that not one of your investors asks about that, it's very surprising. Derek, are you surprised by that? Go ahead, Eric. I was going to say, and it's not just my, my investors. So when I speak to the companies, they yeah. feel pressures to come out with, you know, annual reports, et cetera. And then I ask them, well, how many of your investors have, have asked you, you know, about that report and go through page by page? And their answer is bloody few of them. And so, you know, I think everyone feels like they're under the gun to have a report and talk about, you know, uh, uh, some of the attributes that Eric talked about, hitting net zero by 2050. You know, our, our oil stands are championing that, that now, which is essential to be able to, you know, attract a certain element of, of global in, investors. But, you know, I, I, it's, it's interesting to see where exactly is that pressure uh, coming from, because it's certainly not the retail community in Canada or around the world. Okay. Dara? Comment? Um, let me make three comments on that. I mean, the first one is when, when you're talking to a fund manager who's managing the top performing fund in the space, um, something's going right for Eric. Okay. And so, um, the ability to cut through a lot of the pressures that maybe others are facing or maybe they seem to be facing, although I think there is a, I do think there's a palpable pressure on, on many others. Um, I think that's working for Eric well, and I think it's an advantage. Right, that he enjoys versus what others may face in terms of just looking for profit in the markets. Um, so I think that's important to recognize. I think the second thing is, um, you know, when I speak with um, some other fund managers, and I say this in a public market context, um, and I say this also from a private investor context, uh, I, I do think there's a heavy burden on many other fund managers where they are being asked to justify internally to their colleagues and also externally to pension, endowment, and other capital providers, um, how their ESG performance stacks up. And I, and I think it's um, like, if I told you they were spending 10 or 20% of their time on that topic, I don't think that would be an overestimate, right? Okay? Like, mm -hmm. uh, I think it could very likely be more than that. Right. Um, and part of it is because energy is viewed as a ESG uncertain sector. And so they have to spend more time justifying that part of it versus maybe other things that other sectors might focus on. Okay. So that's the second comment. Um, the third one is, um, you know, I, I think that there's, I, I think there's a policy um, world in which we live. And there's also a separate context uh, that is important for businesses of many types, okay? The policy world in which we live is the Canadian government, the US government, and most other global governments appear to be in a state of alignment in terms of pressuring a very narrow set of ESG criteria and trying to establish firm policies around those items. And I'll say there is a major risk for many investors um, in terms of how those policy changes could affect investments if those policies are implemented to a ideological degree. I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just, I'm just telling you as a factual matter, I think many investors worry that ideological policy objectives may cause unexpected reactions right. in equity and returns. The, the other part of that is um, I actually think that businesses, energy businesses, just like many others, just like my business, um, are fundamentally um, comprised of people devoting effort to the world around them and interfacing with other people and trying to create profit uh, in doing so. And nowadays, um, Attracting the best talent and retaining the best talent in many instances does require an ESG strategy because many new graduates, many people uh, who are closer, you know, half my age 
makes me sound pretty old these days, but um, people are half my age, you know, they view that as an important criteria of firms they want to work at and firms that have a very aligned strategy with their, that employee's values. So I'm not even just saying it's about investment markets. I actually think it extends beyond that, but ultimately attracting better people leads to better returns. And so there are some non-financial measures that lead to financial outcomes. So, um, you know, point one though, does go back. I mean, if Eric can tell you that, you know, he's not getting questioned by investors and he's offering fund, that's hard to argue with. So. <laughs> okay. okay. We've got about five minutes left. Um, uh, the last question is, uh, is focused on, um, uh, and, and this, and this will be for Eric to start. Um, uh, what will be the impact on future investment due to the very public failure and the uncertainty within the industry in such things as uh, Keystone XL, Line 5, the whole issue around infrastructure? How will that in, in impact the future for oil, the oil and gas industry, Eric? So that assumes that the current uh, political leadership stays in place. So let's just assume that that's the case and have sure. that conversation. Given again the backdrop of investors, and again we are the owners of the business. You know, it's not the CEOs, it's not the boards, it's investors. And I would say, generally speaking, investors all around the world are asking of energy companies to not grow their production, given such depressed and depressing valuations, and return capital as a curative again for a multiple compression that's fallen by seventy-five percent over the past ten years, roughly speaking. So the question then is, you know, is Canada you know, what has prevented capital flows and investment? And are those worries, um, you know, reasonable with that backdrop? And I would suggest that it's not. You know, I think Canada will be overpiped in the next two years. You know, were we in a position where investors were clamoring for growth or asking for growth you know, back in the, the good old days, then we'd have an, an issue. But we have more than adequate capacity for at least the next decade. Right. And so that lack of willingness to to invest in this sector and in, in this jurisdiction, I think, really are, are are archaic, and present an opportunity as we get closer and closer to the milestones of of line fill, you know, right. on line three and then and then uh, TMX. So I think that we've got the line of sight for incredibly bullish catalysts, not just on Canada, but globally speaking. As I referenced earlier, I think we're in a multi-year bull market for oil. And when you can buy into equities trading at 26%, 27% average free cash flow yields, trading at a quarter of their historical multiples with the wind finally in our sails, right. how can you not be excited? Yeah. Okay. Derek? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, my overall comments on that, I think Eric covered that very well. Um, I think that... Um, Directionally, uh, what I would see right now going forward is um, the the industry at large and what's happening throughout the allocations of capital and everything else. I mean, this is a pretty special time for the business to be um, garnering these returns, and I and I hope that I hope that companies are able to capture all of the return and deliver it back to shareholders. I think that investors are going to be in a position right now um, to revisit the space and ultimately find probably best in a decade type uh, investment opportunities, provided that commodity prices hold up. And it, it, based on that can change any given six months. But as of right now, that's a fairly good argument because it looks like that's going to be the case upcoming. Um, I think that the other part is uh, it's very easy for people who work in the energy industry um, and oil and gas in particular to be discouraged about the lack of pipelines um, that impacted differentials in 2018, um, you know, policy objectives that at times have probably misaligned industry and policymakers. Eric's comment about there being sufficient egress on the gas markets due to TC's expansions, um, frankly, just incremental capacity on Alliance, um, the ability to have line three and, and you know, likely TMX, I think. Um, a lot of the egress concerns are past, and I don't think there's a ramp up in production that's going to cause those 
those issues to return. And in the interim, there's also been other forms of egress that have proven to be very successful, like rail. You know, and firms like Conoco have committed to actually 10-year rail contracts with a Dillon recovery unit. I think those issues have largely gone by the wayside for the time being. And put another way, let me tell you the number one thing that um, seems to be stalling investor interest and capital in the space. It's a backward-rated strip. And to the extent that the backward-rated strip actually reverts into a flat, or dare I say contango, um, that's the sort of thing that by the time we actually saw a contango strip supply increasing and pipeline differentials being a problem because production's increasing to that degree, the pricing signals that will be associated with that from where we are today will lead to such a tremendous inflow of capital and a demand for investment in the space because you'd see the the curve just invert from backwardation to contango. I mean, that would be a totally different and more positive environment than where we are. So short answer is I don't worry a lot about it because the environment in which I'd have to worry about that is a massively more constructive environment than where we where we are right now. Eric, final comment. I I know it's been a challenging uh, space not only to be invested to, but to be working. You know whether it's on the investment side or actually you know doing the hard hard uh, work. Um, I, I'm incredibly excited as an investor. You know the few investors that are, are left globally looking at this space. It it is such a target rich opportunity where we have secular headwinds finally you know they, we talk about esg and you know it's that very wokeness is leading the world into an energy crisis in the not too distant future and so i think oil we're going to see all-time highs in the coming years and the ability you know to of of meaningful share price appreciation for a lot of us to rebuild the wealth that has been lost over the past couple of years i'm very very optimistic over at least the next five years okay well, gentlemen, I'd like to thank you on behalf of Geo Convention and the delegates who will watch this for your time for this plenary session. I think that the uh, your observations and your uh, and and your optimism, your bullish optimism, will leave a lot of people uh, smiling at the end of the session. So, again, on behalf of Geo Convention, thank you very much for your time today. Pleasure. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks very much. Okay.